on from Rays of the One Light, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. Week 10, dogmatism, dogmatism versus common sense. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 7, Jesus warns, be aware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so very good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Jesus here is indeed, as indeed many times during his teaching, counsels people to use their God-given common sense, and not to rely on the high-flown but undemonstrable claims. Common sense goes beyond abstract reason, for it is rooted in actual experience. Even common sense, however, is deficient when the judgment called for goes beyond sensory experience. Ultimately, what he emphasized was therefore was intuitive perception. Thus, he expected more of his disciples than crude common sense, and often scolded them for being too literally minded, as he did elsewhere when they thought his statement, I have met, I have meat to eat that you know not of, meant that he had steaks and sandwiches secreted about his person. His reference, of course, was to a spiritual, not material substance. Words, even though appearing in the scriptures, are no substitute for direct inner perception of truth. Therefore, the Bhagavad Gita says on the second chapter, the sage who knows God has as little need for the scriptures as one may have for a pond when the whole land is covered in flood. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh, oh, oh. Morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all to Sunday service. My name is Atman, this is Bhakti Marg. We both live and serve here at the village. And we're <clears throat> modifying things a little bit today in uh, preparation for perhaps or precautions for the virus. So when we do the blessing, we won't be coming up to receive the touch of light, we'll just be receiving the light from our chairs when we do that. But otherwise, uh, and there's also probably a number of people who have decided to isolate themselves a little bit and are watching online. So I want to welcome all those who are watching online as well and welcome you all if you're a visitor or a guest here with us today. So I'd like to start with a reading from Whispers from Eternity, Yogananda's Book of Prayer Demands. <coughs> prayer demand to reach the one highway of realization. 
Flower of all fragrances, awaken our senses. Lead us not through forests of uncertainty, where many bypaths lead off in diverse directions, twisting and turning, though as it were hopefully, past endless obstacles to thy city of light. Take us out quickly into that inner highway of realization, the spine, which leads directly to thee. O thou unfailing beacon of light, send thy illuminating ray into the darkness of our ignorance. Show us the right way, and let us not be sidetracked by mere beliefs and dogmas. Help us to experience thee. No matter what our bypath of formal worship, guide us at last into the highway of common soul intuition, which leads to direct perception of thee. Soaring high above narrow lanes of bigotry, and lightly over unyielding walls of religious prejudice, lift our souls safely up into thy free skies of bliss, and let us meet together joyfully in thy unwalled temple of universal worship, with its dome of the free sky, not structured by man-made, man-interpreted, man-prescribed beliefs and limitations. There shall we rise chants of devotion to thy omnipresence, our hymns made sacred by the simple direct sincerity of our hearts. Teach us to seek thee by paying careful, scientific attention, first to what actually lifts our consciousness, practical techniques of salvation that open our consciousness to experience thee. As we live today in a new age of energy which has given us physical flight, so let us realize that we have it in us to guide our airplanes of thought high above the dark fogs of mere theological opinions denunciations, and sectarian squabblings to see the same one sun of truth, in turn lighting city after city, country after country, continent after continent. Even so, dost thou bless all equally with thy love. O beacon of cosmic light, send thy guiding ray of divine understanding into the darkness of our ignorance, that our soaring consciousness may land safely incarnation after incarnation, on terrain conducive to continued thoughts of thee. And, O flower of fragrance, send us the scent of love to inspire us always in our search for thee, with longing to climb ever higher into the stratosphere of divine realization. May dreams of thy perfect garden, far above all space and time, but near to us always in our hearts, speed our soul's journey and quench our thirst in thee. So yesterday, we celebrated the anniversary of the passing of our guru, Paramahansa Yogananda, the Mahasamadhi, the conscious effort, exit of a great soul, great avatar from the body. And as we remember Yogananda, I mean, we're here because of Yogananda, because of his teachings brought through his disciple Kriyananda. But it's especially poignant on today's reading because he was the one who actually brought to us a fulfillment of what Jesus was hinting at in the scriptures. Because although Jesus was asking his disciples to use their common sense and not take his parables literally and to believe in their own experience. Unfortunately, he lived in uh, Kali Yuga. He came during a fairly dark age, and his teachings didn't quite make it through those dark ages. And 
what happened despite his warnings that were solidified into dogma, that things were taken literally, that people didn't necessarily believe in their own experience. It was a time when there was always a priest intervening between you and God, when your salvation was not due to your own thought, it was due more to whether you could follow the prayers exactly, you could follow the ceremonies, you could adhere and say that you believed in these dogmas. But it wasn't until we moved into a new age, a new age of Dwapara Yuga, that again another avatar, another realized being was sent to bring, as Yogananda called it, said, I'm the, he said, I'm bringing the second coming of Christ here, the true teachings of Christ and the true teachings of Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita. Because it had come through that period of darkness where people didn't really understand. And as we reflect on what he's brought us and how that relates to the, today's teachings about common sense, uh, it's important to, to realize that there's nuances to this, like there are with all spiritual teachings. And common sense is, Swami defined it as just relating it to our own experience, relating what we're hearing back to what we ourselves experience or know. But if you look at it, most people haven't had much experience of the divine. And common sense can lead to just a negation of spiritual truth. That's sort of what happened at the beginning of my spiritual path. I was dutifully dragged to a Presbyterian church by my parents and went to Sunday school and <coughs> I applied my common sense to the teachings that I was hearing in Sunday school. And I was hearing about miracles and resurrections and you know people being healed and fishes and loaves. And I used my common sense and just said, you know, I don't get it. I don't, I don't know where this is coming from. I don't believe this. And at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of energy there, and there was no magnetism for me to ask. It seemed like more people were going through the motions of this and just, you know, spouting these things out, and my parents would take us, and there we were. And so my common sense said, you know, I don't know what this is, but it's not for me. So then... You know, I went on in my uh, education in uh, rational secular humanism by going through the university education and of course spirituality faded farther from my view. And I was living after college in Washington DC and this was the early 1980s and I was living actually in Virginia and Northern Virginia was actually the center of the moral majority, that uh, conservative evangelical wave that propelled Reagan into the presidency and this was a stronghold of Jerry Falwell there in, in northern New Jersey and unlike the people in the Presbyterian Church these people had energy but I still applied my common sense and it was even farther out there than some of these other things I saw I mean they were you know, literal interpretations of the Bible. The world is 4,000 years old because we've done the dating from when, the, you know, light became out of the darkness and all through this. And Eve was created out of Adam's rib. And, you know, all these literal, very literal translations of the scriptures that the time cometh when all those in the grave shall hear his word and come forth. I mean, they were talking about, you know, bodies coming out of the grave and you're talking about 
Okay, if you've been in the grave for a while, there's not much there. You know, the worms, they're eating it, and, you know, it just, it made absolutely no sense. And it made so little sense that my friends and I, we took it as a joke. I mean, it was just, it was a source of many, uh, much laughter in our bastions of liberalism and secular thought to this moral majority. So, however, luckily, the other part of common sense that Swami talks about in this reading is the need for some intuitive perception behind this. So not just literally what you've experienced at that point. And so somewhere back in there was this intuitive perception that there was more. There was more to this. And I actually had a friend and a roommate who started talking about meditation and these you know, moving energy through people around in a circle, and somehow I didn't think that this was pure folly, and I sort of was open to it. And then I um, actually had some experience with other religions, because I thought, well, maybe it's just these Christians who have gone, you know, off in the wrong way. And I spent a year in France in graduate school, and I actually, due to a housing shortage in Grenoble, France, I shared an apartment with uh, four students from Northern Africa, who, one of which in particular, Farid, very, very nice fellow, was a very devout Muslim. And so I said, oh, okay, this is time to learn about some other ways of looking at things. And so I would try to engage him in discussions about Islam. And, you know, it could go to a certain point, but again, it was a dogmatic uh, shutting of the door. When we start pushing on things that didn't necessarily make rational sense, he would get agitated. He would sort of shut the door and he would just kind of reaffirm what he'd being taught. He said, you know, how can the prophet be the only ones who could be saved? What if you're born in Antarctica and you never hear about the prophet? And he didn't want to go there. He didn't want to really <laughs> delve into these things. And so to keep peace in the apartment, we kind of, you know, backed off and just went on our way. I also then had the time to spend some time in Ladakh, India, where there's a very beautiful Buddhist uh, community there. And I was tuning in more to the Eastern teachings, and I knew there was a deep thing behind the Buddhism. But again, the outward thing that I saw there was there were lots of monks, and they would come and do lots of ceremonies, and every part of the life was permeated with this. And it was, it was beautiful. There was this chanting and all this going on. But it's still, that magnetism wasn't there because I think those monks hadn't necessarily gotten that intuitive perception to really bring it inside for themselves. Because you would see them, you know, they're there chanting, and of course I had no idea what they were chanting because they were chanting in Tibetan. But I got the impression I didn't think they had any idea what they were <laughs> chanting either. And not to take anything away from them, but it was, it was just, it was rote. It was just a rote repetition. And, You'd see them sort of looking about absent-mindedly, and after the ceremony, they would get served beer from the households that they were serving, and it just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't quite there. But I did have enough intuitive perception to know that there was something more, and I had started meditating at this point, and started more with the physical side of it, hatha yoga, meditation. Again, I wasn't so convinced by the scriptures. I just, you know, I. Even the Hindu scriptures I couldn't really relate to. But fortunately, the techniques, as it says in Whispers, techniques, you know, open us to something, to this more intuitive perception, this true teachings. And 
Finally, we arrived at Ananda, and we came here. We were in the area, actually at another yoga ashram, and we came and we took the tour on Sunday. And what got us to Ananda, what overcame all my common sense, was by their fruits ye shall know them. And when we came here, we just took the tour. We didn't go to Sunday service, we didn't stop for a meal, but just feeling the vibration of the people we met, of the land here, we said, huh, there's something here. There's something here we're looking for. There's a fr I don't know what these people are doing, but the fruits of what they're doing is tangible. We can feel it. We are open to this. And so we started, you know, getting more involved and experimenting a little bit more. And it's like, who's the guru here? Okay, what's this? Paramahansa Yogananda. Okay, yeah, autobiography. Okay, yeah, I best I better read this. And, you know, gradually we realized that this was our path and this was what was going to take us to God. And we've dedicated our lives here for the last, for 30 years we've been on this path. But as I was reflecting on this and this topic of dogmatism and common sense, what was it about this path that helped me to overcome my past common sense, my past doubts, my, my inability to really dive into a certain path? Because you know, I'd been with various disciples, yogic disciples, same teachings, same uh, you know, meditation techniques, very similar, hatha yoga, but it hadn't, it hadn't grabbed me. And you know, maybe it was I wasn't ready, and maybe you know, it was time for the guru to come when it's time for him to come. But as I was reflecting on this, there were a number of things that I thought about that were really important in this. And I want to go through a number of those. One was, truth is not afraid of questions. So Yogananda said, and this teaching was so complete and was so precise, especially as Swamiji, Swami Kriyananda, our teacher and founder of this community, especially as he expounded it, as he was able to write this, he said, I've had all the doubts you can possibly have, and that's why I am probably able to teach you something. And, you know, no matter what question you had, it all fit together. It wasn't like this was a piece here, and, well, we don't really talk about that because that's over there. It all fit. It was a complete worldview. It was a complete path to self-realization. It was a complete integration of body, mind, and spirit. And it answered my questions. It was, you know, as, as close as I could get or to perceive to the truth. And as I, each got, as I got closer, it would answer my questions. So a second one is that it was um, based on the saints and not so much on the scriptures. So clearly Yogananda was a central avatar, our line of gurus here. They were clearly saints. But you know, just uh, appealing to other saints to say the scriptures can never answer our questions. The scriptures don't talk back. You know, the Protestant church, it's just individual reading the scriptures. Well, it just didn't happen because there's a lot of space for the ego to get in and delusion to come in there. But here, we realize, I realized that it's the saints who make the scriptures. Rarely is it scriptures who make the saints. And so tuning into those saints was something that was, it made it real. It made it really wonderful. So of course, Yogananda, but also many others. I've been reading lately, there's a wonderful book uh, that was fairly recently published in English called Mother Reveals Herself. And it was all about 
uh, Ananda Moima, especially her early years, and it was written by one of her first disciples, Bahiji, and basically transcribing things from the mother. And tuning into that was, uh, there were some very interesting things that were related to today's topic. Um, Ananda Moima grew up in East Bengal, which is now um, Bangladesh, and a Brahmin family, but quite poor. She went to school for oh, about four months out of her life. She was betrothed to be married at age 12. She went to live with her brother-in-law, started living with her husband at age 17. Never really studied, but she was an awakened soul who then this awakening manifested through her. She would, especially with kirtan, she would just go into ecstasy in these kirtans. She would hear the divine name chanting and she would go up on her toes and just this look of ecstasy and just start dancing and be in this ecstatic trance-like dance and then she would collapse on the floor and stay there until the next morning, you know, sometime mid-morning, she would awaken. And one such instance, she would awaken and there was this humming coming out of her throat. And gradually this humming took form as Sanskrit chants. It was, she was chanting the Vedas, these ancient rites, these ancient Vedas in perfect Sanskrit, which she had never studied. She had never, she couldn't even read Sanskrit, let alone she had never seen one of the Vedas. And these just started coming forth. She, her body would spontaneously do mudras. It would do certain yoga postures that took, you know, a long time to perfect. And she would effortlessly go into them she would perform ceremonies, pujas, doing the incantations that the priests would do. And the priest said, she's doing this perfectly. You know, I don't know where she got this from, but she is. So as, her, as, her, as she became more and more known, her magnetism reached out and people started coming to see her. And she would hold satsangs. And about the same time, the pundits, the keepers of the dogma, the keepers of the scriptures, came also to check out, well, who is this person? You know, is, this, is this of God or is this of the devil? What's going on? And they would have, uh, it was described, Baiji described it as this ongoing inquisition. They would come and they would ask her all these detailed questions from the scriptures and she would answer effortlessly and flawlessly with exact answers. You know, she would teach them and gradually these pundits came to become her disciple. The, the chief principal of the Benares uh, College of Sanskrit was one of her disciples because he realized that she knew things that he didn't know from his scriptures. And she would, she could effortlessly change scriptures. She was at one point uh, worshiping or doing puja next to a, a tomb of a Muslim uh, saint. And she was speaking in Arabic and doing flawlessly the rites the Muslim rites uh, that one would do for this religion. So again, it's the saints <coughs> have no need for the scriptures. Somebody asked Yogananda, said, you must be very well read, sir. And he paused and said, you know, I probably have read less than 20 books in the last 20 years. But he knew, he could, he could converse on anything. He knew the scriptures, but he also knew all worldly things. So it's, it's again that intuitive perception connecting on a different level that the saints have that we can aspire to. So another thing that's uh, really appealed to me about this path was a sense of humor. So I had been to way too many ashrams and religious gatherings where it was all 
very solemn and serious and all this. And I came here and it was, it was really refreshing to see Swami talking, telling jokes, to have, there was just a lightness here. There wasn't this sense of, of self-importance. And humor, uh, Kriyananda talked about, I said humor is really a, a, an ability to put things and see things in perspective. And so if you're a dogmatic, evangelical, moral majority, you don't necessarily have a lot of perspective and you don't have a lot about humor or seeing yourself in a larger context. I mean, you're defending the faith and the truth against, you know, <coughs> all these incursions of the heathens and lest they have internal damnation. I mean, it's not a, it's not a very joyful sort of thing. <laughs> but <laughs> if you're, you know, if you see yourself as just you know, we're just souls like everybody here. And, you know, this divine comedy, we're all in different stages of realization. And it's this divine comedy. And Yogananda was just, you know, a master at seeing this divine comedy and pointing it out to his disciples as a way of teaching. There's a, a wonderful story that's uh, in relation to today's topic about dogmatism that he told with great joy and great glee as he would say this uh, story. So once upon a time there was a devout uh, Hindu priest who was a little bit uh, egocentric and had gathered about himself uh, 200 uh, illiterate followers and he from them demanded from them obedience and he would teach them and one day his followers came up to him and said master, master please show us the way that we can attain heaven, that we can attain this realization. He said, okay, my children, do exactly as I do, and you too can attain the heaven. So he, they all went into the temple, sat in a circle. He sat down in the middle of the circle on his cushion. He said, okay, straighten your spines. And all the, all the idiot devotees sat down and said, <laughs> okay, straighten your spine. And he looked around and he looked at them and they looked around, looking back, and he said, oh. And they went, oh. <laughs> so then, he says, he started to pray, oh, benevolent sire. They said, oh, benevolent sire. Oh, benevolent Lord, help us to be obedient to our teacher, to learn everything and be able to imitate him. And they all said, oh, benevolent one, help us to be... <coughs> Uh, imitate our teacher and to do everything that he says. And so then they would sit to meditate and he had to cough and all the devotees <laughs> and he looked around and he's go, oh man these idiots. And then he coughed and he sneezed and they would cough and sneeze and he got a little bit more angry because he couldn't you know he couldn't quite understand why these people were so thick and why they couldn't understand what he's doing. So at one point he jumped up and he said don't imitate me in everything. And they all jumped up and said, don't imitate me in everything. And then he said, this idiocy has to stop. And they said, this idiocy has to stop. And they said, oh, you guys, this is ridiculous. They said, oh, this is ridiculous. He started slapping them. And they came back and they started slapping him. And they all started slapping each other, one slapping or the other. And all of a sudden, their, his skin grew very hot and he was burning up and he said, oh, I'm on fire, I'm on fire. And he starts running out of the temple and all the idiot devotees start running after him. I'm on fire, I'm on fire. Well, what did he see? He saw a well. And he said, okay, I'm, you know, I'm gonna have to cool myself off. So he jumps in the well. 
and you can imagine what happened. <laughs> all the idiot devotees jumped in the well on top of them, and they all went to heaven together. <laughs> so, that, so that was just, there's all these wonderful stories that, that Master was able to, you know, he'd get you laughing and then come in with a, with a truth that he would say. Uh, another thing on this path that really I found very uh, appealing was that it wasn't closed, that there was a sense of reaching out, a sense of charity, a sense of compassion, of sympathy. Again, seeing ourselves in perspective and always reaching out. It was something that Swami, from the very beginning of this community, never let any of us forget. It said, you know, we're not just here for ourselves, we're here to serve. And think of the people that have served you to get you to this place, and we must serve others. And just seeing everyone as a soul, and this soul in different stages of delusion, just like we're still in delusion. But again, that so many works close in on themselves and this spiritual ego, this self-righteousness, and, and say, you know, we're better than others, but not here. It's, it's this compassion, it's this looking out. And Yogananda would say, you know, we're all crazy. And this is actually, he, this, he said this various times, but I was yesterday with his Mahasamadhi, I was reading the book uh, Paramahansa Yogananda in Memoriam, and this, this part is actually in the 10-minute speech, his last speech that he gave, where he ended with his poem, My India. But in this speech he talked about, he said, we're all a little bit crazy. And we mix with people of the same craziness, so we're not clear that we're crazy. <laughs> but, when we, but when we go outside and tune into other people's craziness, then we can start to learn and we can see that it's not just us, that there's everybody has their own craziness, everybody has their own path to God, everybody is moving forward. Uh, next to last one, almost finished here, is uh, again that intuitive perception, just the need to, to realize you're not going to get this from scriptures, you're not going to get this from listening to talks only, you're not going to get this just from the intellect. There has to be a part where you open your heart and devotion, where you feel these things, where you have a sense of, of tune in to that truth, of smriti, of remembering. And that being an important part of this path is, was critical for me. And the last part, of course, is that direct experience of God and this constant emphasis by Yogananda, by Kriyananda, by this path of the need to experience, go by your own experience. And again, it's not that common sense where the experience has shut this out, but, you know, suspending disbelief, getting into this path, but then realizing that, yes, you have had experiences. And we haven't had samadhi, most of us. We haven't had these visions. You know, Krishna hasn't appeared to us in his, in his manifest, unmanifest form as he does in the Bhagavad Gita. But that doesn't mean we haven't touched the helm of the Divine Mother. Think about your meditations, about those calm moments when you're, when you maybe you do see some light, when your body becomes still, when you become just in the present, in that still moment, when that joy starts bubbling up inside you, when you feel that peace that you don't know where it's come from, when you're just there and you know, you know that this path is real and that you know you're on the right path.
Yeah. 